You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Our gracious Father, we are thankful to you for your word, and we believe that in the unfolding of your word there is light. So we pray that you would shine the light of truth upon our hearts and upon our minds and give us an understanding of your word and an understanding of these things so that we might that we might love you and that we might see the glory of our God in the face of Christ, that we may behold you and we may hear in your word wonderful things. So open our hearts to that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, our God is a communicating God, and our God has spoken. And God is transcendent. That means that He is high and holy and far above us and far beyond us. And because we are sinful creatures and we are the created and not the Creator, we would be unable to know that God or to hear from that God or to perceive anything of our God unless He had taken the initiative to reveal Himself. And so when we speak of God revealing Himself or giving revelation, and we speak about the revelation of God, and we're not talking about the, the book at the end of the Bible known as Revelation. We are talking about the way in which God makes His truth known. When we speak of God's revelation, we, are, we have to affirm that had God not taken the initiative to reveal Himself and to expose who He is and what He has done in various ways and at various times, we would be cut off from any saving knowledge of God and we would have no true knowledge of that God. And God has spoken in a number of different ways. Uh, he has spoken in creation, enough that we might know that He is powerful and wise and that He is uh, infinite in His power and that He is eternal. We see something of the eternal nature of God and His eternal power and Godhead in the things that are made. We see God revealed in conscience and we know something about God's moral standards because our conscience convicts us when we do those things that are wrong and God's law is written on our hearts. We see what God has revealed to us in the pages of Scripture through holy prophets of God and apostles who spoke and wrote down the words in Scripture. But the fullest and final and best revelation of God, the, the, the climax of God's revelation, as it were, is in the person of His Son. And that's what we read in Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1 says that God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets and in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son. And this Son, it says... He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And He, that is Jesus, is the radiance of His glory in the exact representation of His nature. And He upholds all things by the word of His power. And when He had made purifications of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as He has inherited a more excellent name than they. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul says that in Christ dwells all the fullness of God in bodily form. All the fullness of the divine nature dwells in the person of Christ in bodily form. He is the fullest revelation of who God is and what God has done that God could possibly give us. When God became incarnate in the person of Christ and walked among us as a man, we beheld the glory of God in the face of Christ, face to face as it were. And the, the record of God's revelation to man is contained in these 66 books that we call Scripture. This is the record of what God has revealed. Now, had God not chosen to reveal those things, we would remain in the dark. Because we have no ability in ourselves, in our own rationality or reasoning or human mind or human senses to behold or to grasp that God because He is veiled from our sight. He is hidden, as it were. He is distant from us. 
Though He is near to us, He is hidden from us because we are sinful and we cannot see Him. And we can, though we can see parts of Him and aspects of His character in Revelation. Now, the last couple of weeks, well, actually last week and, and leading up in these weeks to Christmas, uh, we are talking about the mediatorial work of Christ. And when we speak of how God has revealed Himself to us in the person of Christ, that is one aspect of His mediatorial work. Last week, we talked about what it means to be a mediator and why Christ is qualified to be that mediator. We looked at First Timothy chapter 2, and we saw that there is only one mediator between God and man, that is the man Christ Jesus. And now we're starting to look at different elements of his mediatorial office, his mediatorial work, and we usually consider those things under three separate and distinct heads. We recognize that Christ is revealed to us as a prophet, he's revealed to us as a priest, and is revealed to us as a king. And those three offices, prophet, priest, and king, each one describes some different aspect of Christ as our mediator. In terms of him being a prophet, that is how God mediates his revelation to us. Christ mediates the word of God to his people, speaking through Christ, not only in the written scriptures, but also in the, the incarnate word, which is the uh, Jesus Christ himself. That is God mediating the word of God to us through Christ. When we say that Christ is our priest, we are describing his work on our behalf toward God or for God. He offers sacrifices. He offers a sacrifice himself in order to open up to us heaven so that we may approach the throne of grace. He functions as our priest, mediating the, his work to the Father on our behalf. And when we describe him as our king, we are describing there the mediation of God's rule over his people through Christ. So two of those mediatorial offices, prophet and king, describe what what Christ brings from the Father to us. And one of those, the priest, describes what Christ brings or presents to the Father on our behalf. So he is the great mediator. So today we're looking at Christ as the prophet. And for that, you're going to need to turn to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 18. I know that sounds like an odd place to turn for a passage describing uh, Christ as our prophet. I could have chosen any number of passages from the Gospel of John, but I think if I had asked you to turn to the Gospel of John, half of you would have got up and walked out. So Deuteronomy chapter 18. We're going to be looking specifically at verses 15 through 18. And I chose this passage because it kind of captures the, the essence of what the Jews were expecting in terms of what their Messiah would be. And we see this passage quoted or referred to at least four distinct times in the New Testament. I'm going to give you those references here before we are done this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 18. We'll read together verses 15 through 18. Though I'm going to be taking you through the, the context here as we go. Verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your own countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked for, I asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see his great fire any more, or I will die. The Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to the words, my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Now, that's the passage that describes the, the Jewish expectation or one of the first glimpses that the mediator, the Christ, uh, the Christ that would come, the Messiah, would be a mediator and that he would fulfill the office of a prophet. And we need to back up a little bit and kind of catch the context because the context is important. And for that, we need to go back to verse 9. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, now, I want you to notice before I begin this, verses 9 through verse 14 is a prohibition. There were certain things that were prohibited to the nation of Israel, to the people. And then verses 15 through 18 and 19, the promise of a prophet, was kind of the answer, the other side of the flip side of the prohibition. Look at verse 9. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, 
you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, or one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls upon the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For those nations which you shall dispossess, uh, for those nations which you shall dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and to the diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. Now that's the prohibition. And what was Moses prohibiting there? He was prohibiting them approaching uh, necromancers, people who called up and conjured up uh, messages from the dead, sorcerers, diviners, uh, people who practices witchcraft and casted spells. There was to be no communication with the spiritual world in an attempt to gain understanding or insight about the spiritual world or spiritual truth from those sources. And God prohibited that. They were not to do that. And notice that it's three times called detestable in that passage. And the other nations that were lived in the land of, of Israel at the time, that the children of Israel were going to go in and drive out, they practiced, the, they practiced those things. And the Lord said, you are not to do those things. You are not to seek information regarding the spiritual realm from these spiritual sources. But, the Lord said, I instead will give you a prophet. So they were not to pursue understanding of the spiritual realm from those other sources. But the Lord Himself would speak to His people, not through necromancers and sorcerers and diviners and spiritists and people who witches and people who called up the dead. The Lord would speak to His people through prophets. And then there is this promise, I will raise up for you a prophet. And this prophet will speak all my words and you must obey him. So there is that which is prohibited, which was the, the necromancers and the spiritists. And listen, the reason that God prohibited those things was not because uh, not because we cannot talk to the dead, though we can't, and not because we cannot talk to the spiritual realm. People can, because there are real spiritual beings and there is a real spiritual realm. But the spirits that exist in those realm, that realm, a good number of them are fallen. And they make it their job, their task, their design to deceive us and to communicate to us untruths in order to lead us into idolatry and all kinds of horrible practices. And so the Lord prohibited that. You're not to receive information regarding those from, regarding the spiritual realm from those sources, but instead, I will give you a prophet. In other words, God is saying, I'm going to speak to my people through prophets that I will raise up. But notice that there is here a specific promise of a specific type of prophet. There is in verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet uh, like me from among you for your countrymen. You shall listen to him. Now, I want you to notice three things. First, this prophet is referred to as a singular individual all the way through this passage. It, it, there is in mind, in Moses' mind, as God is revealing this to him, there is in Moses' mind one particular individual. And that is why down in verse 19 it speaks of he and him and his. There is one particular person who would fulfill this role for the nation of Israel that's being described here. Now that's not to preclude the, the idea that there would be other prophets. There would be, because later on Moses talks about other prophets and testing other prophets. But there would be one person, one person in particular, who would be a fulfillment to this prophecy. Also notice that this prophet would be raised up from amongst their countrymen. That is, that he would be a Jew. And also notice that the responsibility would rest upon the nation of Israel to obey this one who would be raised up. In other words, his words and his commands would be something of a, with a unique significance that God says, if they will not obey him, I myself will require it of him. So there is one individual who has impeccable authority and impeccable credentials who was raised up from among the Jews who himself would fulfill this. He would not just be a prophet, another among the prophets, but he would be the prophet. And as I said, this does not preclude the idea that God would not raise up other prophets. 
but that there would be one amongst the other prophets raised up who would uniquely fulfill this this prophecy, this role. Uh, notice that there are tests for those prophets who would come after this prophet, or sorry, for those prophets who would come after Moses prior to this prophet, verse 20, but the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in my name of other gods, that prophet shall die. Any prophet that was raised up amongst the people of Israel who would draw the people of Israel away after other gods was to be stoned. He was to be put to death. And this is a test. This is one of the two tests given in this passage for a true prophet. A true prophet would speak according to the revelation that had been given. Every Jew could go back to the books, the, the book of Moses, the book, five books of Moses, and test what a prophet said against what was revealed in Scripture already for Moses. And if that prophet spoke kindly of other gods and led people astray after false gods, they were to be stoned and put to death. That's the first test of a true prophet. The second test of a true prophet was that everything that prophet spoke would come to pass perfectly. Look at verse 20, uh, 21. You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? Here's the answer. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So two tests. Number one, orthodoxy and adherence to the truth. He speaks according to what has already been revealed. And second, does everything that prophet speak come to pass? And if he doesn't, he is that is the mark of a false prophet. Now, as an aside, we have a, a whole group of people in modern evangelicalism who claim to be prophets who are anything but accurate. Some of them boast of 20% or 15% accuracy. These people are heretics. Under the Old Testament scheme, they would have been drug out and stoned. I'm not suggesting that, though sometimes I dream about it, getting these people out of the church, but they ought to be rejected because everything that they say does not come to pass. And their argument is that that standard for prophets has been lowered. So God used to require 100% accurately. Now it's just kind of hit and miss and whatever, whatever God gives you through an upset stomach or indigestion or whatever it is, anything he speaks to your diseased mind at any moment that it might happen, you think this is the word of God and we just have to wait and see if it comes to pass to know if that's one out of 20 that's accurate for this month or whatever it is. That, that was not the standard in the Old Testament. The old standard in the Old Testament was 100% orthodoxy and 100% accuracy. And that is how they would know that a prophet spoke from God. And by the way, you can, you can apply that test to the Lord Jesus Christ and he passes. Because not only did he speak of the Father in orthodox, uh, in orthodox language and theology concerning the Father, but he perfectly revealed exactly who the Father was. Perfectly orthodox and perfectly accurate. For every prediction that he gave was true and came to pass. Okay, so those were the tests. Now back to verses 15 through 18. That's kind of the context. And then we see in the passage that Christ was, that, that this pass, that this prophecy was a prediction of one singular individual who would fulfill this who himself would be a Jew, and who the Jews would be required to obey. Now, over the course of time, the Jewish people came to understand that this, that this prediction, this prophecy that Moses gave, would be fulfilled in likely their Messiah. And Jews were kind of, because the Jews didn't understand what we understand today with the full revelation of God's truth, the Jews kind of viewed this a bit differently than, than we might today. And it was, and depending on which Jew you talk to, you might give a, get a different opinion. So some Jews, if you had asked them, who is the prophet, they would have said, well, it's the Messiah. And the prophet, the one that Moses speaks of in Deuteronomy 18, and the Messiah, they are one and the same individual. The Messiah is the prophet. That prophet is going to be the Messiah. If you asked other Jews, they would say, well, the prophet and the Messiah are going to be two separate individuals holding two separate offices. Some of them would have suggested that this prophet was the forerunner. Uh, like John the Baptist, who would come and he would announce the Messiah. He would be that prophet, but the Messiah would be somebody different. And you see this even in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, where the Pharisees sent uh, men to John the Baptist to ask him who he is. 
This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent him to the priests, sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he, that is John the Baptist, confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What are, do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. So you notice what they asked him. Are you Elijah? Are you the Christ? Are you the prophet? That was the line of questioning. These were separate and distinct in their minds, and they wanted to cover all of their bases because some Jews thought that maybe the prophet and the Messiah would be two separate people fulfilling those two different roles. But we understand today that the one who fulfilled the role uh, mentioned by Moses in Deuteronomy 18 was himself the Messiah, that the Messiah and this prophet are one and the same. Now, the Jews were familiar with the role of a prophet. They understood this because they had all kinds of examples. Moses himself was something of a gold standard among all the prophets. He was kind of the gold standard by which all the other prophets were measured. Because Moses was a humble man, he was a faithful man, he was obedient in all the things that God had given to him. Well, not completely obedient because Moses wasn't perfect. Remember, he wasn't allowed to see the promised land because of an act of disobedience. So Moses wasn't perfect, but he was sort of the best that you could possibly expect. And, and all other prophets were really measured according to Moses. Were they faithful? Were they humble? Did they speak the truth? Did they communicate divine truth on, on God's behalf? Did they call the people to repentance? Did they, did, did they apply the truth of God to the people in their own nation, in their own context? And Moses did all of those things. And sometimes when we think of what a prophet was to do, we think of somebody who strictly foretells the future. But that wasn't the only role of a prophet. It wasn't even the primary role of a prophet. The primary role of a prophet was to take the, the truth that God had revealed and to apply it to the people and to call the people to repentance. This is why when you read through the Old Testament prophets, the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, and the minor prophets like Micah and Malachi and others, they take what had been revealed by Moses and what was being revealed to them and they applied it to the people in their own context. Calling the people to repentance. Calling the people to turn and to turn to God. And reminding the people of the covenants that God had made with the nation. That was the primary role of a prophet. And prophets did speak for God about things that were future and yet to come. So that was part of, part of their role. But most of it was to call the people to repentance. And you see this, of course, in the ministry of Jesus, that this is exactly what he did when he began preaching. What did he say? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he took the Old Testament, he applied it to the people, he expanded upon the Old Testament like he did in the Sermon on the Mount, calling people to repentance, calling people to holiness, showing them their sin. And Jesus fulfilled the role of a prophet. And of course, he did speak of things that are yet future and yet to come. But Jesus was Jesus not only met Moses' gold standard, he was better than Moses' gold standard. Because he was not just a prophet among prophets, he was the prophet of all prophets. So he perfectly fulfilled Moses' standard and his and his uh, Moses' description here, and he went above that, went beyond what Moses had ever done, because he was perfectly obedient to the Father in everything that he did. So that was the Jewish understanding, and I want you to understand also how the uh, notice how the role of a prophet and God's gift of a prophet to us in the person of Christ meets a particular need that we have. Uh, each of these mediatorial offices of Christ meets a need. His role as a prophet meets our need to understand and know who God is. His role as our priest meets the need of, of presenting a sacrifice that can atone for our sin. And his role as our king meets our need to be ruled by one, by God. We have that need. Though in our fallen state, we don't like to be ruled by God. We don't like sovereigns over us. And as Americans, it's even worse because we have this independent streak where we hate people who tell us what to do, right? But each one of these mediatorial roles of Christ meets a particular need that we have. And so it is with his role as a prophet. 
We need to know who God is. We need to know what God demands. We need to know what God says. Because in our sinful and fallen state, without God taking the initiative to reveal Himself to us, we are benighted, we are ignorant, we are stupid, we are darkened in our understanding, we are a bit thick in the head, we don't get these things, we don't see these things. And so what we really need is somebody to show us exactly who God is and tell us exactly what God demands. And Christ as our prophet fulfills that need. Today we have the same need. We need to hear from God. But today, God meets that need in a different way than He did during the time of the prophets. Today, God meets that need through Scripture. So in Scripture, we hear the voice of God proclaimed. In Scripture, we hear what God's demands are. We see God revealed. We have the record of of God's revelation in Christ. Today, Scripture calls us not to modern-day apostles and prophets or to voices in our heads or to private revelation. Today, Scripture always calls us to look to Scripture as the full and complete and perfect revelation of all that God is and all that God has done for us in the person of Christ. Scripture points us to Scripture. So though we have the same need today, I don't want anybody to walk away from here thinking, okay, now I need to go find myself a prophet. Because Jim said we need to hear from God. We hear from God in the pages of Scripture. This book is the perfect revelation of who God is. And we need nothing more because it is sufficient. All right, so that is the Old Testament expectation. Now let's look at the New Testament fulfillment of this. And this would probably be, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you five statements about what the New Testament teaches concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you scripture references for each one of these so that we can see how the New Testament intentionally points us back to this passage in Deuteronomy and to Christ as the fulfillment of this passage in Deuteronomy. So here's the first statement if you're taking notes. Jesus is called a prophet in the New Testament. It's interesting that he was called a prophet in the New Testament, not just by the people who knew him best, but also by the people who knew him least. The crowds, though they might not have known much about Jesus, knew enough to know that he was a prophet. And so we see, for instance, in Luke chapter 7, when Jesus raised a man from the dead and presented that man back to his mother, Luke 7 verse 16 says, Fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asked the disciples, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And he's speaking of himself there, the Son of Man. Who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said to him, Matthew 16, 14, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. See, even circulating amongst the amongst the crowd, the people who knew Jesus least, was this notion that he's a prophet. And so he speaks for God. In John chapter 4, when Jesus met the woman at the well, and he revealed to her not only her whole marital history, but her whole moral history, do you remember what she said to him? I perceive that you're a prophet. Well, that was an understatement. Go call your husband. I don't have any husband. You're right, you've had five, and the one that you're living with now is not your own. You must be a prophet. She was able to discern that, and that was just based upon a few moments of conversation with him. She saw him to be a prophet. John chapter 17, or sorry, John chapter 9, after the man born blind was interviewed by the Pharisees, the Pharisees asked him, so seeing that he has opened your eyes, what do you say about him? Remember what he said? He's a prophet. Now eventually, the man born blind came to understand that he was more than a prophet, because when he came back to Jesus and had a face-to-face conversation with Jesus, that ended with that man bowing down and worshiping Jesus on the spot. So, But he was able to perceive, at least from the sign, the miracle that Jesus was a prophet. In Matthew chapter 21, it says, The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from the Nazareth in Galilee. And the Pharisees and the scribes wanted to seize Jesus, but they were afraid to, Matthew 21, 46 says, because they, the crowds, considered him to be a prophet. 
In Luke chapter 24, and this is the testimony of those who knew him best. In Luke chapter 24, when Jesus in his resurrected body was walking with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, um, remember that Jesus was veiled from their sight, so they didn't perceive who he was. And Jesus approached them and said, what are you guys uh, discussing? And they said to him, what, uh, uh, they said to him, he said to them, what are these things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people. And the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the senses of death and crucified him. So the disciples, after the resurrection of Jesus, though they didn't understand that they were talking with the risen Christ, they were able to identify him as a prophet. So the testimony of both those who knew him best and those who knew him least was that he was a prophet. Second, Jesus claimed to be a prophet. He claimed to be a prophet. In John chapter 5, and this is where I could have had you turn to the Gospel of John, but I didn't. I'm going to give you a list of of references from John, and I'm going to read them to you. And I want you to listen to how Jesus described the words that he spoke and the teachings that he gave. In John chapter 5, after Jesus healed the man at the pool, and the Pharisees got angry with him and accused him of blasphemy because he said he works, the Father works on the Sabbath and he is working until now. Uh, John 5 verse 19, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son does in like manner. Now that is Jesus' claim to do both perfectly all of the works of the Father as well as to give all of the words of the Father perfectly. Everything the Father does, the Son does. And the Son does nothing except what the Father does. John 7 verse 16, My teaching is not mine, but His who sent me. John 7:28. Jesus cried out in the temple, saying, You both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but He who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know Him because I am from Him, and He sent me. In John 8:28, Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father has taught me. John 8:38, I speak the things which I have seen with my Father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your Father. John 8:40. but as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. John 12, I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father Himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. In John 14, verse 10, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative. But the Father abiding in me does His works. In John 14, verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. John 17, verse 8, Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer, For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. John, the, uh, Jesus or John, whoever speaking in John chapter 3, verse 34 said, For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. So Jesus claimed to be a prophet. Continually throughout his ministry, he told the people, I do not speak on my own initiative, I speak for the Father. And everything that the Father has told me to say, I say to you. And only what the Father has told me to say, I say to you. He claimed to be the perfect revelation of the nature of God and the perfect revealer of everything that God gave him to reveal. That was his claim. Now, Jesus, of course, claimed to be more than a mere prophet. Because Jesus made claims that no other prophet could make. Believe my words or you will perish everlastingly. Jesus claimed to be preexistent. He claimed to be the sovereign king. He claimed to be in charge of his own birth, his own death, 
to exist before he came to this earth to do perfect. He claimed to be sinless and perfect. Those are claims that no other prophet made. So Jesus claimed to be a prophet, a spokesman for God, and claimed to be a perfect spokesman for God, but he went beyond that. He claimed to do, to be the perfect one who was the perfect revelation of who God was. That's number two. Number three, Jesus performed signs and wonders as proof that he spoke for God. And one of the elements of, uh, one of the purposes of signs and miracles in the Bible is to attest to the validity of the messenger of God. Uh, signs were not done by every Tom, Dick, and Harry who just wanted to perform a sign or a miracle. That wasn't the purpose of miracles. And they weren't given to wow people and they weren't given to create faith because they don't do those things. They were given as an attestation that the person who did these miracles spoke for God. In John chapter 3, when Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, Nicodemus said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God has sent him, unless God is with him. Nicodemus recognized that the miracles that Jesus did attested to the validity of his claims to speak for God. In Luke chapter 7, after Jesus healed the man, or raised the man from the dead and presented him back to his mother, again, the crowd said, a great prophet has arisen among us. In John chapter 6, after Jesus turned water, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Loaves and, and multiply bread and fishes, turn water into wine. That was a different miracle. After Jesus multiplied the bread and the fish in John chapter 6, the crowds began to say, truly, this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And even Jesus in John chapter 5 pointed to his own miracles and said, if you don't believe the words that I say, believe the works that the Father has given me to do. You see, the, the people, if Jesus had done no miracles and yet claimed to be who he claimed to be, the people would be would be justified in holding him in suspicion without anything to authenticate his magnificent claims. But given the light of what he did and the miracles that he did, they could not be justified in holding him in submission. The only response was like the man born blind to bow down and to worship him, to recognize that he is not only a prophet, but the prophet and the son of God, and then to bow down and worship. That's the proper response. But Jesus didn't expect, uh, Jesus expected the people to listen to his words and then to look to the signs and the miracles that he did as proof that the words that he spoke were true. So the third thing is that Jesus performed the signs and the wonders to prove that he spoke for God. Fourth, Jesus is called the prophet. Oh, by the way, in John chapter six, this is something I forgot to mention, but it's significant. When Jesus multiplied the bread and fish in the wilderness in John chapter six, the crowds began to say, truly, this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Why would they say the prophet and not a prophet? What were they thinking of specifically? Deuteronomy chapter 18. And why were they thinking of Deuteronomy 18 specifically? What had Jesus just done? Provided bread in the wilderness. What had Moses done? Provided bread in the wilderness, right? Later on in John chapter 6, the people came to Jesus and said, that miracle you did earlier, that was really good. That was really cool. Can you do it again? And this time provide bread like Moses did for the children of Israel in the, in the wilderness. Not, not just for 5,000 people, but let's do something really magnificent. Let's have this same miracle each and every single day. That would be really good. And they asked him for more signs. See, what were the people thinking in their minds? Moses provided bread in the wilderness. Jesus provided bread in the wilderness. They asked Jesus to provide bread in the wilderness like Moses had done. And so when Jesus had done that, they began to think this is the one who is like Moses, whom the Lord would raise up. So, Jesus performed those signs and wonders as proof that he spoke for God. Fourth, Jesus is called the prophet in Scripture. Twice in the New Testament, this passage is alluded to. Twice in the New Testament, this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 18 is quoted. Let me give you, first of all, the two passages where it is quoted. In Acts chapter 3, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, speaking to the crowd of people that had gathered there, 
In reference to Jesus, Peter said, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. In part of that statement, Peter is quoting Deuteronomy 18. In part of that statement, Peter is paraphrasing Deuteronomy 18. But later in the sermon, he points back to that, Jesus being the fulfillment of that. So Peter, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 3, quoted Deuteronomy 18 and said, that prophet is Jesus. So obey him or perish. The second time it's quoted in the New Testament is in Acts chapter 7 by Stephen, right before he is stoned. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen said, this is, the, this is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren. And then at the end of Stephen's sermon, he pointed back to Jesus. He reminded the people, Moses promised this one, and Jesus is that one. And then twice it is alluded to. Once in John chapter 6, when the people, in response to Jesus multiplying bread and fish, said, truly, the, this is the prophet who is to come into the world. They were thinking of Deuteronomy 18. And the second time is in John chapter 7. When some of the people, therefore, when he had heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. And others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? See, the people were divided. Some people said, he's the Christ. And other people said, he is the prophet. Now, who was right? They were both right. Because he is one and the same. He is both the prophet and the Christ. And so fifth, Jesus was more than a mere prophet. And probably the best way to show that Jesus was more than a mere prophet is to contrast Jesus' ministry and his words with the other prophets, uh, namely from the Old Testament. And there are two different, there are two ways in which Jesus' ministry and his prophetic ministry were different than Old Testament prophets. Uh, number one, Jesus spoke as one in authority. He spoke as one who was in authority. The Old Testament prophets would say, thus saith the Lord. Jesus said, this I say unto you. He spoke as one who spoke on his own authority. Other prophets from the Old Testament, they had a delegated authority or a commissioned authority. They spoke as one, uh, who, their, their words were authoritative, but they spoke as one, uh, as those who received authority from another to speak on that person's behalf. Jesus didn't speak that way. Jesus' words had a ring of authority to it as if, not as if he received authority from somebody else, but as if he himself was the authority. That's why in Matthew chapter 7, after Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, it says, when he had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. He didn't appeal to other people. He didn't quote other people. He spoke as if he were speaking as God. And guess what? He was speaking as God. In John chapter 7, um, the Pharisees sent soldiers to go arrest Jesus, officers to go arrest Jesus, and they came back empty-handed. And the Pharisees said, where is he? Why didn't you bring him back? You remember what they said? No man spoke. Like that man speaks. No man speaks like him. They, they didn't dare arrest him. Why? Because they didn't speak as one under authority. He spoke when he spoke as one who was the source of all authority. That's what marked him different than the Old Testament prophets. They said, thus saith the Lord. Jesus said, I say unto you, as the one who is the authority. And the second way that his ministry was different from Old Testament prophets, Old Testament prophets were self-effacing and Jesus' ministry was self-advancing. In other words, he drew attention to himself. And this is sometimes, theologians sometimes call this the egocentric nature of Jesus' teaching. We don't mean egocentric in a bad way because it, it can be bad to be egocentric. But when you are the God of the universe, there's nothing bad about being egocentric because you're the God of the universe. And so Jesus could draw attention to himself and it was completely appropriate for him to do so. 
But other Old Testament prophets, uh, this is John Stott who said Christ's ministry was self-effacing, meaning he pointed away, or, sorry, Old Testament prophets were self-effacing, meaning they pointed people away from themselves to the truth, and Christ was self-advancing, meaning that he drew people's attention to himself. To himself as the source of truth. Uh, Old Testament prophets would say, this is the truth, believe it, follow it, obey it. Jesus said, I am the truth, believe me, follow me, obey me. Do you see the difference between those two things? No Old Testament prophet spoke like Jesus spoke. And so when he stepped up, he didn't say, this is the truth, go after that. He said, I am the truth, follow after me. And he drew people to himself. It's completely appropriate for him to do that and right for him to do that because when Christ speaks like that, it is life for his people. Because we are to come to him. If God were to step into this world and speak to a fallen humanity, what would it sound like? Would he point to somebody else or something else as the object of faith and worship and obedience and something to follow after? No, it would sound exactly like Jesus of Nazareth sounded. He would draw men's attention to himself. Old Testament prophets pointed away from themselves. Jesus drew men's people's attention to himself. Why? Because he is God in human flesh. And it was quite appropriate for him to do so. So Jesus spoke not just as a prophet, another in a long successive line of people who spoke for God. He spoke as the prophet, and he is called the prophet, and he is the one who fulfilled, uh, he is the one who fulfilled Moses' words in Deuteronomy chapter 18. So that's the New Testament fulfillment of it. Now what are the implications of this or the application of it? And the first and most obvious one, I think, is right here in our text in Deuteronomy chapter 18. We are to obey him. That is what we see in verse you flip back there. We, it's what we see in verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. For your countrymen, you shall listen to him. Down in verse 19, it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. The words of Jesus require obedience. He spoke not as one with, to whom obedience was optional. He spoke as one to whom obedience was required. It was necessary. He said in John chapter 5, Truly I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And he does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. To ignore the revelation of God in Jesus Christ, or to turn away from his words, or to refuse to obey him, is to cut yourself off from the source of life itself. It is to cut yourself off from the source of life and to secure your everlasting damnation. Because we must obey him. If he is God in human flesh... And what he has spoken is absolutely true. And we are required to obey him. God could give us no clearer revelation of himself than he has given in the person of his son. Our God has spoken, and he has spoken in the person of Christ. He is not just a prophet. He is the prophet. He is the prophet of prophets. He is the prophet of whom all the Old Testament prophets prophesied. He is the prophet who fulfills all other prophecies. He is the perfect prophet because he is Christ the Lord. And as the angel said to Joseph, you'll name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. What has God given to us in the person of Christ, in the incarnation? He has given to us the perfect revelation of himself. He has spoken in Christ. Let's bow our heads. Our Father, we are grateful to you that you have given us such a clear revelation of your will and your nature and your character in Christ who is our Lord. Thank you that our minds have had this time to think upon these things and to reflect upon these truths. We pray that you would make us appreciative once again of all that Christ has done for us as the mediator, the perfect representative of your nature. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming to this earth and being born of a virgin, just living among us and suffering among us and dying among us and rising among us that we may have eternal life. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for your work of applying these truths to our hearts. 
opening our eyes to see them, that we may behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. That is our desire, our longing, and that is the, that is what meets our deepest needs. We thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.